Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Habakkuk. Now, I'm just going to be real honest with you. I don't know that I really know how to pronounce Habakkuk. Habakkuk, Habakkuk. Um, the, the Jewish way to say that would have a little guttural and it would be Habakkuk. But that would be hard to tell. And so take your Bibles, turn Habakkuk. Now, I also want to tell you, if you don't know where Habakkuk is, um, there's no shame in that. It's one of those books buried in the minor prophets. It's in between Nahum and Zephaniah. And my guess is, if you're not sure where Habakkuk is, knowing it's between Nahum and Zephaniah is not going to help that much. All right. And so if you need to use your table of contents, use your table of contents. Um, or if you want to take one of those black Bibles in front of you that says Bible on it and turn to page 832, you will be there. All right. And so we're going to be in the book of Habakkuk today. We're in the midst of a series of messages on these short prophet books in the Old Testament that finish out the Old Testament. I want to start today by asking you a question that I want you to think about, and then I'm going to kind of come back to it in just a moment. And so here's the question I want to ask you. If you could ask God one question, so if you could ask God one question, you're in a room with him, and you've got one question with God, what would you ask? I don't want you to shout it out. I don't want you to tell me. I want you to think about it for a minute. If you were in a room and you had a moment with God that you could ask him one question, what would you ask? Well, some kids were told that they could write a letter to God. Now, I'm not sure how their teachers told them that they would get it to God other than just to say we're going to pray and let him know. But some kids were asked if they would like to write a letter to God. And I thought it'd be fun for us to look at some of the things that they wanted to ask God or tell God. For instance, we've got this one that says, Dear God, please change the taste of asparagus. It's gross. Thanks. And all of God's people said... Amen. If you like asparagus, you're weird. All right. Or this one that's a little more personal. Dear God, please send Dennis Clark to a different camp this year. I think we've all known a Dennis Clark or been a Dennis Clark. All right. Or, you know, sometimes they're just questions about what happens when he wants to take some time off. My mommy told me what you do. Who does it when you're on vacation? Like who's in charge of that? Right. And so, um, Or this one, uh, Dear Jesus, please don't come back before the next Cars movie. Now, I've seen all the ones they produced. That was probably a disappointment when it finally came out, all right? Um, Or this one, uh, Dear God, if you let the dinosaurs not extinct, we would not have a country. You did the right thing, all right? God was appreciative of that. Um, Or this one, Dear God, did you mean for the giraffe to look like that, or was it an accident? Norma's designing animals for God. And then this one here, this is the last one. Dear God, thank you for the baby brother, but what I prayed for was a puppy. (laughs) Brothers and sisters have all been there at some point, right? So have you thought about it? Like what would, if you could ask God a question, what would you ask? Because today, as we continue in our series of messages on the minor prophets, we're going to encounter a prophet that is unique. In fact, if you look at the other prophets, if you look at Joel, or you look at Amos, or you look at Nahum, or you look at Micah, or you look at Zephaniah, almost all of them start with a very similar phrase, something like, the word of the Lord came to. 
And the idea is that you've got a prophet of God, a God that has been appointed by God to speak his truth, that is listening, that is praying, that is seeking the Lord. And God says, now here's the message for my people. I'm going to use you for it. If you remember when we went through the book of Jonah, that twice it said the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And the idea is they receive the word of the Lord. They speak for God to the people. But Habakkuk's different. Because it doesn't start with the word of the Lord came to. What it starts with is he had a vision and the first words out of the mouth of Habakkuk are not words that God speaks through him to the people. It is questions that the people have that they are bringing to God. Now we don't know how many people, but we know at least one person. And that's Habakkuk. And so the book of Habakkuk is this interesting dynamic that is not God speaking through a prophet to people. It is a dialogue between God and one of his prophets where the prophet starts it and says, God, I've got some questions for you. And God answers him. And he says, well, i got some more now that you've answered that. And God answers him. And finally Habakkuk comes and gives praise to God over what's happened. But what's going on in this passage, what's happening in this book, is that real people are facing real questions about real issues in life. And just to kind of give you a quick update on the background of where we are in this book, we're a little later in history than we've been during this series. And so if you remember last week, we put this map up. I think we've got the map that we can put up again of the fact that after David and after Solomon reigned, that the kingdom of Israel separated into the kingdom of Israel and of Judah. And the northern kingdom that we talked a little bit last week was um, just terrible in its following of God. They created, if you remember last week, they created shrines with golden cows to worship instead of God. And God was displeased with that. Their record of kings was bad, bad, worse, worse, terrible, even worse. Could not believe how bad they are. And eventually, around 722 B.C., God brought the Assyrian army, the Assyrian empire up here, and they destroyed the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom, however was saved in the midst of that. And so they, who had good kings, the line of David, Jerusalem, where they worshipped, they had done mostly what they were supposed to do. But as time went on, they began to fall farther and farther away from the Lord until an eight-year-old took the throne. A kid named Josiah becomes king, and as he's working through his life, he finds the letter of the law. They had lost it. He reestablishes the faith. He reestablishes the religion, and the people have a revival that is unbelievable. But then he dies, and his sons make a mess of the kingdom. Habakkuk is 12 years after he dies. They've got a new king in town. We'll talk about him in a minute. And here's what's happened. The people of God have started to walk farther and farther away from God. And there are two major events that have happened recently that is scaring Habakkuk. First of all, this Assyrian empire that was the most powerful in the world that took over the northern kingdom was defeated. They lost. Now, originally they thought, well, that's a great, that's a great thing. We're excited about that. But then... The kingdom that defeats them rises in power within 20 years to where they have conquered more land than the Assyrians ever did. And they're knocking on the door of Jerusalem. They may know who that kingdom is. The Babylonians, right? If you ever watched Veggie Tale, it was King Nebuchadnezzar, right? They, he likes the bunnies, all right? Some of you will not get that at all. Some of you, childhood flashbacks are happening, all right? 
And so Habakkuk comes to the Lord and he's like, God, what are we going to do? Here's what I want you to understand. Three things I want you to understand from this book, and we're going to start right in with this. Questions are a normal part of our faith journey. You cannot expect to walk with God your entire life and not question some things that happen. Habakkuk was a guy that was a called prophet of God. We don't know much about him. We know very almost as little about him as any prophet in the whole Old Testament. But we know this. He was called by God as a prophet. God spoke to him. And in the midst of God using him, he says, wait a minute, God, I've got some questions. And my guess is they are some of the same questions that you have had. I know they are some of the same questions that I've had. He starts in Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and he really asks the questions that are on his heart at that moment. The first question he really asks is, how are we going to make it? Look at Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 with me. It says, this is the pronouncement that the prophet Habakkuk saw. How long, Lord, must I call for help and you do not listen or cry out to you about violence and you do not save? Why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Oppression and violence are right in front of me. Strife is ongoing and conflict escalates. This is why the law is ineffective and justice never emerges. For the wicked restrict the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. He says, God, are we going to make it? What's, what's going on here? What, why is this happening? He asks questions like, what, are we going to make it through this period of our lives? Drought had devastated the land. They were at a place where they did not know if they were going to have enough crops to make the next year. The Babylonians were knocking on their door. And Habakkuk says, I have called out to you. 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 And I don't know if we're going to make it through this. I don't know if I'm going to get through this particular season of my life. And maybe you are in or have had seasons of your life like that where you've lost a job and you're not sure how you're going to make it through or you've had a bad medical diagnosis or a crumbling marriage or you got out of a long-term relationship and there were no prospects out there or there's financial difficulty and you think, how am I going to make it through this? Maybe it's a class that you're taking and you don't know how you're going to get out of there and pass it. How am I going to make it through this, God? Habakkuk says, God, how can I make it through? The second question he really asks is, God, and where are you in the midst of it? God, we're looking for you. I'm looking for you, and I don't see you. In fact, in chapter 2, he's going to say, after God responds to him once, he's going to say, I'm going to go stand on the watchtower. I'm going to watch both directions, and I'm going to see if you come, God, to see what's happening, because I'm waiting for you. I want to know where you are. Now, there are a couple of reasons he says that. It is because there is this Babylonian empire that is encroaching upon them. But there's also this reality that under Josiah had been this real revival of God's people, and it was gone in 12 years. Now, I know that seems like a long time to us, but in, the national, in a nationwide understanding, that's quickly. It's like a summer camp high that's gone by September. And he's like... How long are you going to let this happen where it seems like we start to get back on track and then a bad king? Why are you tolerating these bad kings? And when I say they had a bad king, one of the sons of Josiah, this great reformer, was a man named Jehoiakim, and he was a terrible, terrible king. The Bible doesn't speak positively, and rabbinic literature writing about him gives this description of him. He was a godless tyrant that committed atrocious sins and crimes. He had unholy relationships with his mother, 
his daughter-in-law and his stepmother. He would find a woman that he liked. He would murder their husband, take the wife, and steal the property. He was ashamed of being a Jew. Now listen to me. He was ashamed of being a member of the people of which he was king. So much so that he had surgery to undo his circumcision. Jeremiah came and reported to him God was bringing disaster. And he read the first part of the scroll Jeremiah brought to him and threw it in the fire. One writing says that he bragged about how evil he was and said previous kings like Manasseh thought they knew how to make God most angry, but I have figured it out. Habakkuk looks at the throne of God's people and he says, how long are you going to tolerate that? Where are you, God? How can you let this happen? In verse 3 of what we just read, He says, why do you tolerate? The idea there literally is, why do you sit idly by doing nothing? Why do you sit on your hands? Have I put my faith in the wrong place? Now listen, I know we're in church and I know it's Sunday morning. Everybody wants to put on a good, happy face. But there have been times in your life I'm going to guess. I know there have been times in my life when I have asked the question, God, where are you? Why have you allowed this to keep happening? When is it going to end? What are you going to do about it? I feel like I'm doing what you've called me to do and nothing is happening as a result. God, where are you? Well, God answers Habakkuk. We don't always get that direct answer. He gives a direct answer to Habakkuk, but it's not the answer Habakkuk wants because he says, listen, here's what's about to happen. You're right. The, The king, the throne is in disarray. They are godless. My people have turned away from me. You're right about that. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring the Babylonians and I'm going to destroy it. I'm going to destroy Judah. And Habakkuk goes, wait, 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 wait a minute, God. That, that, that's caused another question. Is that really fair? Like, you're going to use people that are more godless than these people to destroy us? What are you talking about, God? Why would you do that? And this book is a series of back and forth questions, complaints and answers, followed by one of the most remarkable statements of faith. And its shape is to show us how we are to grow in our faith. And at the heart of it is this question of what philosophers have called for centuries, the problem of evil, or theodicy is the big term, is this idea of why does evil exist in a world where we have an all-powerful, all-good God? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good things happen to bad people? Why isn't it fair? Why doesn't it seem just? And the book of Habakkuk sets up in the first two chapters with the prophet bringing difficult questions to God. Here's the second thing this book teaches us. Our questions have answers. Now here's what I want to tell you right from the very beginning, all right? Because I'm going to tell you some of the answers to the questions. There isn't always the answer we want, the answer we expect, the answer we think we deserve. But there are answers to our questions. 
And when Habakkuk says to God, God, what are you going to do about this? God, what's going to happen here? God, why are you listening? Why are you even thinking about that? Why are you bringing those people upon us? And God says, listen, I'm not going to leave the Babylonians unscathed. They think they're winning it because of their own power. They're going to destroy you because of mine. And I will bring judgment on them as well. He says, I've got a bigger picture in mind. In the first response to him, in chapter 1, verse 5, he says to him, Look at the nations and observe. Be utterly astounded, for I am doing something in your days that you will not believe when you hear about it. Now, here's what I want you to understand. This is an interesting little thing, because sometimes people use this in missions, and I'll explain why in a moment, but they use it in missions to say, see, God is going to save the nations. But that's not what God is saying here to Habakkuk. He's saying, I'm about to use an evil empire to destroy you, because it is the best thing in this grand scheme of my plan of what needs to happen. You see, God sees the end from the beginning, the whole picture, where we see a myopic little part of it. Now, my kids are out of this stage for the most part. We still have to go get... um, I still have to go get shots every now and then. I think Luke has to have a few before seventh grade coming up. But um, uh, he may not have known that. Sorry, Luke. That's exciting. I know. Uh, I think in about three, in about two weeks, we'll go do that. All right. But how many of you remember or have ever had the experience of holding your newborn or fairly newborn or one year old when they're getting shots? Maybe ever had that, right? I remember, listen, I took my boys and like with my boys, I was like, come on, just, you know, it's all right. But then I took my girls. Yeah. Maddie's giving a demonstration there, right? But here's what I remember. I remember holding my girls when the doctor comes. And, you know, they don't ever give like a one. It's like today we have the myriad of 12 that we're giving for your immunization. It's not that many, but it's five or six. And you lay them out. And I remember, hold her, hold your baby, hold your daughter tightly. And then they start to give the shots. And I'll never forget both of my girls holding them while the shot's being given, and both of them turning their face and looking at me like, why are you letting them do this to me? You know what I'm talking about? How many of you have ever seen that? You're right. Like, why are you letting them do this to me? And looking at them and just being like, yeah, and they're about to be three more, right? Because they cannot understand in that moment that the pain that they are receiving is protecting them long term. God sees the big picture. And there are times in our lives when God is holding us like a child who's getting immunization shots and asking the, we're asking the question, God, why aren't you taking this pain away? And God says, I see the whole thing. And while it may be difficult in this moment, I'm allowing it because of the bigger picture. Well, what is that bigger picture? Well, God's priority is his renown, his glory. Look at chapter 2, verse 14. This will be up on the screen. This is God in his answer to Habakkuk. He says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory as the waters covers the sea. He says, listen, I'm in process. I'm in part of this started in Genesis. It started in Genesis chapter 3 when I pronounced that one day the uh, serpent would have his head crushed by one of my descendants, by one of the descendants of Eve. And this is going to happen. It's coming. And what we have to understand is this is a necessary part of the plan. And my picture, he says, my picture, God says, is not the salvation just of the Jewish people that are living currently in 
in this situation, my view is an understanding that the gospel of Jesus Christ will shed to the entire world. Now, he didn't even know who Jesus was. Habakkuk, he couldn't understand that. There is no possible way he could imagine what is happening in this place right now in our time. But it all was set in motion because of God's plan to get it to happen. And this is what I want you to understand. God's priority is always people, but it's always more than you. You're part of it. He loves us. He died for us. But he's also died for every person that is on the face of the planet today. And his goal, his purpose, is for us to be the ones that communicate that to the ends of the earth. When the book of Acts comes around, we read the book of Acts. I told you that last week while we were in Denver. And it's amazing the number of Old Testament references that come into the book of Acts. But in the book of Acts, this is quoted. That first one I did was quoted about the fact that God would do something among the nations that you wouldn't believe. And it's taken to an evangelistic understanding, a gospel presentation understanding. And God is still in the midst of taking the gospel to every tribe, nation, tongue, and language. Everybody, everywhere is to hear the gospel. And that's his plan. And the question we have to ask is, what is our part of that plan? Because if we're not part of that plan, if we're just worried about our plan in the here and now, we are missing out on the opportunity to be with where God intends for us to be. And then he tells Habakkuk, finally, this is the final response that he gives to Habakkuk in the book before Habakkuk goes into praise. And it settles every question we may have. And it's chapter 2, verse 20. He says, But the Lord is in his holy temple, Let the whole earth be silent in his presence. You know what that means? He's still on the throne. Now, God said this to Job in a little more direct way when Job came and questioned him and questioned him and questioned him. Now, Job never sinned. It tells us that asking the questions wasn't the big part. But God finally says, Job, let me ask you a question. Where were you when I created the earth? Because you weren't here. Where were you when I told the ocean, hey, you don't come any farther than that? Where were you when I created the animals? Where were you when I keep everything in motion? Where were you when all this happened? And basically he says to Habakkuk right now, listen, Habakkuk, I'm still in control. You've got your questions. That's fine. I'm not worried about your questions. Questions are fine. But listen, I'm on the throne and I'm in control. And the one thing that settles all of this is, the fundamental question that we must ask is, is God on the throne? And if he is, then we live in faith. Now Habakkuk (laughs) hears that. And he begins to do something that's important for all of us when we get into those seasons of life, when we wonder, God, why are you taking so long? God, Where are you? God, why is this not settled? He remembers what God has already done for him. Chapter 3 is really just a recounting of the Exodus. And as he thinks about the Exodus, and we're not going to go through all that, we are going to get to the end of it and read one of the most amazing declarations of faith in the entire Bible. But he begins to think, you know what, first of all, none of us deserve anything good. You know, the question of why do bad things happen to good people, R.C. Sproul was asked that, and he says, when I meet good people, I'll ask them. We overestimate our goodness. 
Scripture says there is none that are righteous, no, not one. All of our righteousness is like filthy rags before the Lord. Scripture says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, we think just because we have been given something by God through grace and mercy that we did not deserve in the first place, that somehow we now deserve things because God did for us what we could not do. When the reality is nobody in this room deserves anything from Almighty God. In Luke chapter 13, there's one of those kind of strange moments. If you just read in the Bible, it doesn't feel like it fits with Jesus' normal thing. In Luke 13, the disciples come to him because apparently there was a disaster that happened in Jerusalem. A tower fell over and it killed um, 18 Jewish people. And they say, "Uh, Jesus, let me ask you a question. Um, Were those people killed because they were bad people? And maybe God saw an opportunity that they all gathered in the same place and he made the tower fall on them. And Jesus says they weren't killed because they were worse than anybody else. The question you ought to be asking is, why wasn't I there to be killed? What he also remembers as he thinks about the Exodus in Habakkuk is not only that no one is good except God, but that God is not short on power. He commands the weather and the earth and the people of the earth. He uses them as he's about to use Babylon like puppets in his hands. He can mold anything he wants to because he is almighty God. But then he also remembers that God does not give up on us. We sang about that and one thing remains, right? Never gives up, never gives up on me. Your love. And so Habakkuk is sitting at the end in the middle of chapter 3 and he's asking the question, what am I going to do? I asked God, God, are you going to let this stand? And God says, no, I'm going to use the Babylonians to destroy you. And you're like, well, I don't think that's the answer I wanted, God. Why would you do that? That's not fair. And God says, it's not about fair. I'm going to take care of them. I am God. You're not. I'm in control. I see the whole picture. In chapter 3, verse 16, this is what Habakkuk says. This is what I want you to understand. Faith is a choice. Verse 16. I heard and trembled within. My lips quivered at the sound. Rottenness entered my bones. I trembled where I stood. Now I must quietly wait for the day of distress to come against the people invading us. He says, listen, God, I have heard your message. I have heard what you have told me, and I really still don't like it. That word I trembled within, that is my bowels were upset. Like he is literally sick to his stomach. His lips are quivering in fear at the sound. And that just gentle settledness of rottenness entered my bones. I shook where I stood. God, I have heard you. I hear what's happening. I understand it's going to happen. I am still not really okay with that. In fact, I'm going to sit quietly. I'm going to wait for the distress to come on those people invading us. Because I know they're going to destroy us and that you're going to set it right. But I'm going to wait patiently for that. Then in verse 17 he says, Though the fig tree does not bud and there is no fruit on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though the flocks disappear from the pen and there are no herds in the stalls. He says, God, even if everything in my life is taken away. Now I know a lot of us in this room are like, good, no figs. I don't like figs. Like I'm not a big olive fan and I just go down to Publix and get what I need, right? But for these people, it meant complete destruction with no hope based on the fact of their circumstances. 
This is like a Hebrew country song in the 600s B.C. Right? I've heard that old joke about what you get if you run a country song backwards. You get your wife back, your truck back, and all your money's restored, right? This is like a bad country song from the 600s B.C. in the Judah. He says, listen, if there is absolutely nothing left, it's literally for us like if they take the house, if they take the family, if they take my food, if my job goes away, if my bank account withers, if I have nothing left. Verse 18. Yet I will celebrate in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord, my Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like those of a deer and enables me to walk on mountain heights for the choir director on a stringed instrument. Even if everything in my life is put to ruin, yet I will praise the Lord. Buried in chapter 2, verse 4, is a verse that you ought to underline in your Bible. Because it is the word that God gives him that I think that he is responding to here. In chapter 2, verse 4, Habakkuk's given his complaint and he said, I'm going to wait on your answer, God. I'm going to stand here and wait. And the Lord says, write it down, clearly inscribe it. The vision is yet for the appointed time. It testifies. Look, their ego is inflated. Babylon's coming, he says. But the righteous one will live by his faith. The righteous shall live by faith. And what has to happen in our lives is we have to make a conscious choice not to live by feelings, not to live by our works, not to live by fear, but to live by faith. And when we do, when we choose to live, trusting in the God who holds everything together, there are two things that happen to us. First of all, we receive strength to live today. I mentioned last week and talked about, showed pictures of where we were just a couple of weeks ago when we were, actually a little over a week ago, when we were in the Rocky Mountains. One of the things that's amazing about being in the Rocky Mountains, we went up to Mount Evans, is that along the way you see animals near the top. Like there's a bird up there. I literally said, like if I was a bird, I'd find somewhere else to live, all right? Because it is cold and desolate. You're above the tree line and you still see animals up there. The Bible here gives an image that I think is important to us to understand because one of the things I could not show in the pictures, one of the things that's hard to capture is when you're driving up that mountain, there are sheer cliff faces that go down into deep valleys. And it looks like if you made a wrong move with your wheel, you're tumbling down there. But there are animals that thrive in that environment. In fact, we've got a little video here. I'm just going to kind of play in the background, I think. There it is. And this is just a sheer rock face. And these are young, almost baby ibex, a type of deer. And they walk on it like it's no big deal. And so as treacherous as it comes, now what you don't see in this clip, look at that. What you don't see in this clip is, look at that one guy just hanging out. Like, oh, okay, I'll go now. Is there is a fox chasing them from the top. And look how sure-footed they are just running on those hills. Fox is like, huh? Right? 
All right, turn it off because they'll be distracted. All right. He says that God is the one that makes us in turbulent times on the sheer face of a cliff. He makes our lives like the sure-footedness of the deer on the mountain. God is our strength. It's not that we receive strength from God. He is our strength. And the most important thing you can do when difficult times come and questions arise is connect with God. First and foremost, do what we talked about last week in Amos. Seek the Lord and live. Some of you are struggling right now and you're trying to make it through and you're trying to figure it out. And you're coming to church and you're here and you may be even doing some things religiously, but you have not connected with God. You have not sought God. You have not gone after the Lord. You have not seen and pursued Him. And if you don't do that, it's pointless. Going through the motions without connecting with God is not what he intends. Here's the last thing it gives us and then we're done. When we choose to live by faith, it gives us hope for the future. Habakkuk says there, right there, right? I'm going to stand and I'm going to wait for the destruction of our enemy. You're going to do it, God. I know you are. I don't know when, I don't know how, but I'm ready for it to happen. Do you know that hope has been proven to be one of the most important factors in life? There was a Johns Hopkins University study that was trying to figure out how long a rat could swim before he drowned. Sounds like a fun study to be a part of, doesn't it? So what they did is they just took a bunch of rats and they threw them in a bathtub of water. And when they did that, they just did that kind of the control experiment to see how long they can last. They lasted 10 minutes before giving up and drowning. Then they did the experiment, but this time, instead of just letting them go, what they did is two to three times in that first ten minutes, they would pick the rat up out of the water, hold it for a couple of seconds, let it get its breath, and then put it back down. What they discovered is that when they gave hope to the rat in those first ten minutes, it lasted 60 hours. It swam for 60 hours. Ten minutes without hope. 60 hours with. And what happens when you begin to live by faith is you have hope that sustains you in the midst of whatever's happening in life. I read the story this week of a missionary named Alan Gardner who was one of the first English missionaries that wanted to go to South America and he got shipwrecked off this coast of South America, actually towards the southern edge of it. He and his crew worked hard, tried to make it, but eventually the the people that were there, the um, original people that were on the island, were not very friendly to them. They attacked them some. They cornered them off, wouldn't let them have access to food. And so eventually his crew died. Alan was the last of his crew to die, and several months later a rescue ship finally discovered where they are, and they found him laying out unburied, and he was dead, obviously of starvation. When they moved his body to get it ready for burial, they found his personal journal underneath. Had the pen beside it, and it was open to apparently the last thing he ever wrote. And he had written Psalm 34.10. Those that seek the Lord lack no good thing. And underneath it he had written, I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. 
A man literally starving to death, being shipwrecked on an island, and his last thought was the goodness of God. Though the fig tree does not bud, there is no fruit on the vines. Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though the flocks disappear from the pen, and though there are no herds in the stalls, yet I will celebrate in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. For the Lord, my Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like those of a deer, and he enables me to walk on mountain heights. Let's pray together.